Welcome to Eye to Eye, the podcast of the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. My name is Sunil Mamtora and I will be your host. Here we are at episode 3. In this episode I spoke with Mr John Ferris, a consultant ophthalmologist from Cheltenham. We spoke about his paper concerning cataract surgery complication rates. I also spoke with Preeti Sangera, an optometrist working at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. She summarised for me who is eligible for a free sight test when they go to the optician. Before we listen to the first interview, here's a quick reminder. Don't forget to submit your abstract for College Congress 2020. The deadline is on the 16th of December. For more information, visit rcopt.ac.uk. Hi Mr Ferris, thanks for joining me today. I read your paper titled The Impact of IC Virtual Reality Training on Complication Rates of Cataract Surgery performed by first and second year trainees in the British Journal of Ophthalmology and I found it really interesting. I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners a bit about it. Well, the, the paper was something that Rob Johnson and I uh, had been talking about uh, doing for uh, a number of uh, years because we thought that the uh, National Ophthalmology uh, database data was it was a rich source of information on um, training complications from cataract surgery for ST1 and ST2 trainees and with the advent of the IC in the UK from 2010 onwards um, we thought we could use the the NOD data to compare units which had an IC and those that didn't have an IC uh, and see if there's a difference in the complication rates between trainees because most surgeons who have had trainees who've been trained using the IC felt intuitively that they took to uh, live surgery more rapidly uh, and in a safer manner and although there's a very large volume of literature that proves that the IC improves people's performance with certain tasks be it the capsulorexis or some of the sculpting modules and others there was no uh, large multi-center paper that showed that uh, the IC reduced complications in, in, in live surgery so that was our, our aim. So this really was the first study of its kind to objectively demonstrate that there was a reduced posterior capsular rupture rate uh, in trainees who had increased exposure to the IC surgical simulator then? Uh, yeah, this is the first uh, paper in any surgical specialty that's actually shown that a form of simulation training has reduced complications in live surgery. Uh, and Roger Kneebone, who's the professor of surgical education at uh, Imperial, um, he was one of the reviewers and felt it was a landmark paper in the sphere of surgical edu- education by being able to, uh, to prove this. So how much of a difference did the IC simulator actually make? So if you looked at uh, trainees who'd had access to uh, an IC, uh, their PC rupture rate, if you look at cases which had been performed before access to an IC, the PC rupture rate was 3.5% and that fell to uh, 2.6% in cases where trainees had access to an IC. That's looking across all uh, units. And in those cases where the trainees had no access to an IC, again, it was about 3.6%. But it's slightly more striking when you look at individual units and looked at their PC rupture rate over a six-year period, because in those units which either had an IC in the unit or an IC in a neighbouring unit, their PC rupture rate fell from uh, about 4.2% to 2.6%. So that's a 38% drop. And of course, the beauty of the NOD data most of which was gathered from centres using Medisoft, is that you could look at any confounding factors such as case complexity. Um, and it was very straightforward with Paul Donachie, our uh, statistician for uh, NOD, to compare the case mix for 
those three groups. So the groups of uh, trainees who are working in an IC centre, a neighbouring IC centre or no access to an IC. Um, and we proved that actually there was absolutely no difference between the case complexity there that could account for the difference in PC rupture rate. And reassuringly, it was good to see that the case selection was excellent in all three groups. So ST1 and ST2 trainees, as we would hope, were not being asked to do complicated cases. Yeah. Yeah, it's always good to see that the ST1 trainees are not being given the most complicated cases. I mean, at face value, it might seem that the small percentage, you know, in terms of real-world data in reduction in PC rate is quite small, but a 38% reduction is quite massive and having looked at the data quite in quite a lot of depth you know, there's a massive uh, you know, data set there and obviously all the data is statistically significant. Yes, I mean it was almost 18,000 you know, cases which is the largest series of uh, uh, largest surgical series for any form of you know, trainees by a factor of about 50. So I mean, wow. it's a huge uh, data set but you need that when you're looking at you know, small changes in, in PCR. But if you go back maybe 10 or 15 years to the first NOD uh, publications, they were showing across all uh, levels of trainees, ST1 to, to 7, that the average PC rupture rate was 5%. Um, so it's been coming gradually down you know, since then, and the IC, I think this paper's proven, has been a major uh, contributor you know, to that. Yeah, I noticed that you know the data has been collected from 2009, from between 2009 and 2015. Do you think there could be any other factors during that time which could have contributed to the reduced PCR rate? Yep. So we sort of looked at that. For example, the uh, advent of the soft tips for the INA cannula, but they didn't really come into 2016. None of the centres that we were using uh, for our uh, study actually had access to these until really? after we stopped data collection. Um, and so that was one that I think could have been a, a major confounding variable. And in the uh, reports I had from the trainers in those centres, there had been no change to the training that they'd offered other than access to the IC. So there were no new courses or no new methods of uh, training using model eyes that they hadn't used before. So we think uh, the reduction PCR can be attributed to the access to IC training. Sure. And I know you mentioned that in other specialties, similar systems have been used. Is there any similar landmark studies for other specialties which have talked about reduced complication rates? No, there's, there, there are none really. In the world of laparoscopic surgery, uh, be it general surgery, gynecological surgery, uh, vascular surgery, there are lots of uh, studies that have looked at improving competence with certain you know, techniques, but the one uh, large-ish study uh, for cholecystectomy and um, endoscopic coles showed a modest reduction in complications with, with live surgery, but it was only in one centre and only had about 15 trainees. So it's tiny, tiny numbers, uh, really. Mm -hmm. I think ophthalmology is unique in that we're a high volume surgical specialty and we have this uh, fantastic resource from our electronic patient records uh, of recording the you know, data and with 100% data capture so we can actually analyse things like case complexity. So you know, it is a, a, a paper which I think would be hard to replicate in other surgical specialties. I mean, from reading your paper it seems obvious that all ST, well, junior ST trainees should definitely be using IC before they operate on patients. But what do you think about you know, more senior trainees using the IC simulator or you know, surgeons who are more competent at cataract surgery? Is there any benefit to using the simulator? I think there, there is, especially now that the IC has added mod modules for anterior vitrectomy training, malugan ring insertion, but also uh, 
their capsularexis modules are excellent. You can practice uh, your capsularexis techniques when you're uh, operating on a lax uh, zonule or a, a, a white mature you know, cataract. And so it can be tweaked to make it you know, technically very difficult. And I think a lot of consultants who aren't familiar with the IC, when they first have a go at it, they realize that it's, it can be quite a challenging uh, uh, simulation uh, tool, uh, and perhaps more so than they thought. And the other thing to emphasize is that uh, it's definitely not just for trainees in the first couple of years of training, because if you're trying a, a new technique, maybe you're working with a new consultant in a different hospital who it doesn't use a divide and conquer technique, maybe uses a chip and flip or some other chopping technique, and rather than just going straight into theatre and trying that, you can set up the IC uh, to practice that, then maybe use some of the uh, Philips Studio modelized to practice that technique as well before taking it on. It really, I don't think it's appropriate in this day and age for people to be trying a new technique without practicing it uh, first. And if you look at the analogy of sports people, so professional sportsmen and women, professional musicians, they're constantly practicing. And I think it's something that if we ingrain early into our new uh, generation of ophthalmologists, they will see the benefit of continued use of simulators throughout their career. Not necessarily just for cataract surgery, uh, but for other types of surgery as well. And from people having career breaks, maternity leave, you know, coming back from research, there's lots of uh, uh, benefits from going back to the IC before going back to, to live surgery. Uh, and I really hope that uh, the work the college is doing will produce a sort of cultural shift in the new trainees to just a change in their mindset that uh, they wouldn't contemplate trying something new without practicing it first. See one, do one, teach one should definitely be confined to the dustbin of history. Of course. I was lucky to have good access to the IC surgical simulator during my ST1 and ST2 years in the seven deanery and I feel it definitely improved my confidence and helped me to progress. However, unsurprisingly, the simulator is extremely expensive. Despite all the benefits that we've talked about, is it really financially worth it? Well, I think the other uh, nice aspect of this uh, study is looking at the cost-benefit uh, analysis from cataract surgery uh, re reduction and complications of the cataract surgery. So the analysis that we did at the end of the paper showed that uh, the reduction in PCR rates, if you look at 450,000 cases done a year in the UK, 5% done by trainees. If you look at the more optimistic figure of 38% reduction in PCR, that equates to about 350 fewer cases per year. So if you put aside just for a moment the, the human cost of that, the financial uh, cost, it's probably about 650,000, £750,000 the NHS is saving per year. And what I'd like to think uh, that the paper will help with is to raise the profile uh, amongst uh, specialty directors, uh, amongst hospital managers to say this is actually should be a mandatory uh, part of uh, training, but the funding from it should be coming from clinical budgets because it's really a clinical governance issue if your trainees don't have access to this. Um, and if we can get a modest contribution from clinical budgets that will help with a the ongoing cost of maintaining the IC but also perhaps with capital costs of buying uh, new ICs for those larger geographical regions which may only have one in their region. So following on from the paper I understand that you've taken on the role of managing the new surgical simulation course and the microsurgical skills course at the college 
I know there's a lot of changes coming to that. Could you tell us a bit more about those changes? Okay. So the microsurgical skills course uh, set up by Larry Benjamin uh, has been one of the major successes of, of the college. And the reason why it was set up was to try and give SHOs, as they were then, as they're just about to start their surgical career, a sort of a three-day introduction to microsurgical skills. And it was envisaged that you would do it just at the start of your first year as an SHO or just before taking up an SHO post. But with the arms race that has become national recruitment, um, people were starting to do the microsurgical skills course earlier and earlier. And so even those who were successful in getting an ST1 post had maybe done the course 18 months or two years previously. So any benefit they'd had um, from a theoretical knowledge point of view and certainly from any manual uh, dexterity skills they'd acquired had long since evaporated in the interim. Uh, and probably just as importantly, if we did put 240 people a year through that course, only 80 of them to 90 would actually end up with a, um, a training post. So we're wasting a lot of consultant time training people. Uh, I'm sure they enjoyed the three days, but actually um, two thirds of them were not going to become you know, ophthalmologists. So those are the main drivers behind the changes to have uh, an introduction to ophthalmic surgery for those people who are considering ophthalmology, so medical students, foundation year doctors, um, and that will still run and we'll still put 250 to 300 people through that course a year and you will still get a point for national recruitment, uh, but it won't be mandatory. And in that one day course, uh, we will fit in the same amount of surgical simulation, lid suturing, a little bit of strabismus type uh, surgery, corneal suturing, use of microscopes uh, in that one day that you would have had in the first two days of the original microsurgical skills course. And then the second element is the introduction to phacoemulsification course for our new ST1s. Uh, you have to have done your IC training, completed your IC training before you can access that course. And they will run from the end of October to end of November. Uh, and next year we'll probably move that slightly forward in the calendar to mid-September through to October. And the idea of that is to offer people two days of intensive uh, training uh, with modelised simulation uh, to complement their previous IC simulation. Because I think we both agreed that uh, the IC is great for capsular rexis, it's pretty good for irrigation and aspiration, um, and the antivitrectomy models are great, but personally I don't think it's particularly useful for um, sculpting and uh, segment ma uh, manipulation. So we'll have this broken down into two days of intensive training with six trainers, 20 to 24 trainees, and hopefully it'll be very valuable and let trainees go straight back to their units to uh, commence live surgery. So will this course be mandatory for <coughs> trainees before they need to, before they're going to perform surgery on patients? So because our current crop of ST1s will have already done what was a mandatory course, we didn't feel that we could uh, delay their surgical training this year. But for future uh, trainees, um, they won't have done the, a mandatory course, or most likely would have done a mandatory course. They might have done the introduction course. So you will have to have completed this course before commencing live surgery. But by bringing it forward into mid-September to October, um, that's not going to delay really in any uh, meaningful way their introduction to live surgery. Because I think August and early September can be getting into theatre, uh, assisting you know, consultant doing your cataract surgery, IC time as well, learning to use the operating microscope, 
learning to drape patients, learning to get to grips with biometry, patient assessment, all these other Im- Im- important things. And one of the things that you'd know, like to emphasize in the podcast is this, uh, and it transcends all generations of ophthalmic surgeons, the obsession with cataract surgery and numbers and how quickly you're acquiring your cataract numbers. You've got a seven-year training program. You will have ample opportunities to do many, many cataract procedures. And frankly, in your first two or three months of uh, ophthalmy, ophthalmology training, uh, you should be concentrating probably more on learning basic examination techniques, taking a history, getting to grips with you know, casualty patients uh, without having to worry too much about getting uh, into theatre and starting with live surgery. Yeah, and I think especially with the introduction of the new curriculum, this is something that trainees will have less of a worry about and I think it should increase you know, trainee confidence with you know, more graduated skills training mm-hmm. as well. I think we mentioned about you know human factors in training and non-surgical factors. Mm. Will the course, uh, the new microsurgical skills course, have any you know training on those factors? Yeah, I've been working with a uh, gentleman called Dave uh, Allred, who is a sports psychologist, uh, who is Johnny Wilkinson's uh, was his kicking coach for 15 years and has worked with many international sporting teams, the English uh, cricket boards. Uh, Uh, bowling coaches, uh, world-class golfers, uh, and he has uh, a wealth of experience working with high-performance athletes and many of his simple teaching uh, techniques for A, practice, uh, B, dealing with stressful uh, situations or uh, uh, events in the sporting context where there's been a poor outcome and then you have to face the same situation the following day or or the following week. I think there are lots of parallels between his world and the world of professional sports people, especially you know golfers and musicians with with uh, ophthalmic surgeons. And we hope to be able to put something together, lots of you know, toolkit that people can uh, hopefully use and benefit from in a looking at the way they practice um, and looking at the way they might you know, deal with the situation where perhaps they've had a complication in theatre or a case hasn't gone so well, how you pick yourself up. Uh, and prepare for your next day in in theatre and emphasising to the junior trainees that just because you become a consultant doesn't magically make you immune to these sorts of emotions. It's something that will hopefully help people throughout their surgical careers, not just for trainees. Um, Whether that will be ready in time for this autumn's courses remains to be seen, but it's something that we're really keen to, to add into. Uh, just make it easier to deal with your know, setbacks that we'll all encounter during our, our, our surgery. Sure. I mean, you know, the new, micro, the new microsurgical skills course sounds like an amazing opportunity for the new ST1 trainees. But what about the rest of us who want you know, more skills courses? Do you think there's any more? Yeah, absolutely. And this is only a part of the, the, the programme. Uh, we will be running uh, courses for uh, ocular trauma, so practicing iris trauma, seeps or knots, corneal, corneal scleral uh, lacerations. Uh, we'll be running uh, scleral fixed IOL courses, which have run for a number of years. We'll be increasing those retinal buckling courses, strabismus courses, corneal courses. Taya, uh, who many of uh, the listeners might be aware of, run a series of corneal and uh, glaucoma surgical courses, 14 or 15 a year across uh, the UK. They're going to be continuing with those. Uh, and we're going to bring all of these courses to Congress in Birmingham in, in May. So for the first time ever, we'll be able to provide these are digital dry labs using the Zeiss STEMI microscopes, which are linked to uh, your phone or your tablet. Uh, and we hope to run two separate dry labs, 15 microscopes in each, uh, covering everything from the basics of 
uh, cataract surgery, maybe capsular axis uh, techniques, uh, right the way through to advanced ocular trauma. So there'll be something for everybody, not just the trainees, but for fellows, for consultants, um, and that's really exciting uh, innovation that we're looking forward to running uh, in, in Birmingham. Hopefully it will attract more European, overseas uh, delegates to, to Congress. So you're absolutely right to emphasize that the skills faculty is not just for trainees, it's for all members of the college. Uh, and we hope with the new technology we have with a variety of fantastic new model eyes that uh, we can bring uh, more people to college, but also out into the deaneries and to Congress to try these newer forms of simulation. Thanks, Mr. Ferris. That sounds really exciting. And I actually look forward to joining one of those courses during Congress 2020. Or maybe have you as one of the instructors still in our uh, basic courses as well. The Royal College of Ophthalmologists' introduction to ophthalmic surgery courses will be running in January, March and June in 2020. For more information and to book your place, visit rcopth.ac.uk. Our next interview is with Preeti Sangera, an optometrist who works at Moorfields Eye Hospital in London. She summarised for us who is eligible for free sight tests. Here's the interview. Hi Preeti, thanks for coming to speak with me today about sight test eligibility. I was wondering if you could summarise for the listeners who gets a free sight test. Thanks Sunil for inviting me, it's my pleasure. Um, so I'm going to split this into two separate categories those who qualify because of their demographic group and those who qualify due to them having a disease or being determined to be at risk of developing a disease. So for the demographic group, I'm not really going to dwell on it too much, but this is really essentially those under 16 or over 60 and also includes those aged between 17 and 18 and if they're in full-time education. Those who, and then there are those who also receive some form of benefits and more interestingly includes prisoners on leave. The second group are those who qualify either from a disease or due to being at risk of a disease. Now most people know that people with diabetes and those that either have glaucoma or have a first degree relative with glaucoma qualify for a sight test and are eligible uh, but there are actually a few other individuals that are that can qualify for a sight test, and one of those criteria includes those deemed to be at risk of developing glaucoma. Okay, that's quite interesting. So, you know, when you say at risk of developing glaucoma, what does that specifically mean, and who might decide that? So, the guidelines are intentionally vague, but uh, whether a person is labelled as being at risk of developing glaucoma is really entirely at the discretion of the ophthalmologist who sees them. So, some examples could include if the patient has had a previous hyphema, ocular trauma causing angle recession, presence of pseudoexfoliation or pigment dispersion syndrome, and there's many more. But essentially, the main thing to highlight to the listeners is that if you think a patient could be at risk of developing glaucoma in the future, it's really important that you inform the patient that they are eligible for a free sight test and you write on the GP letter as well. This is especially key if you're discharging the patient. And if the patient knows they are eligible for a free sight test, they are more likely to visit their optometrist and the chance of picking up any early signs of glaucomatous damage is a lot higher. That's really interesting and I think probably it's something as ophthalmologists we might be able to do slightly better. I mean, I'm also aware that patients with high spectacle prescriptions can qualify for sight tests for free. Could you tell us a bit more exactly, you know, what type of spectacle prescription or which patients can qualify for this? Yeah, definitely. So patients who are eligible or what we call uh, complex lens requirements are eligible for free sight tests. And this def 
This is defined as a prescription of greater than either minus 10 or plus 10 diopters. Uh, these patients actually get a contribution towards the cost of their glasses also. Okay. Um, and, you know, we're talking about eligibility for free sight tests, but how often can patients get the free sight test? Well, really, it's down to the clinical judgment of the optometrist seeing them. So generally, we actually say every two years if there's no issues, but this could be sooner if the patient feels that they've noticed a change in the vision. Okay, so finally, I just wanted to talk about those patients who are registered as sight impaired or severely sight impaired. I know they get free sight tests too. Is that right? Uh, yes, they do actually, and I'm really glad you brought this up. These are probably the most important group of patients. We really need to look after them. And um, if a patient is partially sighted, the little vision that they have is really important to them, especially for navigation and independence. We really need to screen these patients for disease regularly to make sure they aren't developing any new issues. And it's especially important that ophthalmologists tell these patients to come see us in the community if they're being discharged from the hospital eye service. Okay, well, that was really useful. And uh, thanks for sharing all that information with us today. You are more than welcome, Sunil. Well, that's the end of episode three. Episode four will be with you sooner than you think. Until next time, take care.